Good morning. Welcome to Pacific Hope Church. If it's your first Sunday with us, your last Sunday with us, or your thousandth Sunday with us, we are a church that preaches Jesus Christ. We aspire through the power of the Holy Spirit not only to exposit a text and not only to lay plainly a theme, but to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. It's him that we worship. As a church, we've been moving through the book of 1 John. We're just past the midpoint. 1 John chapter 3. We'll be picking up today at at verse 11. Before we read a portion of the scripture, I want to remind us of what we've learned thus far and what we've seen throughout this precious letter. We've seen that John aspires to give each of the readers of this letter an assurance of their salvation. By having deposited their faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has done a work of regeneration in them, taken them from darkness into light, taken them from death into life, taking them from disobedience to righteous obedience. We've learned that through this working of the Holy Spirit and this indwelling of Jesus Christ, those things are are internal and not necessarily observable. So John goes through and he helps us understand what are some outward signs of that inward change. We've seen that those who have been made new through Christ are obedient. Back in chapter 2, we're we're told that obedience is a mark of an authentic believer. Verse 3 of 1 John chapter 2, it says, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So obedience marks an authentic believer. From there, we we learn that righteous conduct is a mark of authenticity. We're no longer making a practice of sinning. We're now making a practice of righteousness. And this week, we'll see that there's another defining mark of an authentic believer, and that is that they exhibit the love of Jesus Christ. Obedience, righteousness, and love. That's the marks that we see that Christ has made us new. With this in view, out of reverence for God's word, I would invite you to stand to your feet as we read. We'll regroup from verse 1 of chapter 3 and read through verse 16. This is God's holy, infallible, and eternal word. 1 John 3, beginning at verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous." Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. 
The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hate you. The world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for our brothers. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to enable us to understand, be convicted by, and transformed by his word this morning. Father in heaven, in the name of your son Jesus, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds to hear from your word. We pray that above all else, we would see you clearly, that we would see Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, and that through examining our own hearts, through examining your word, we might be made to be more like you, individually and as this local body of believers. We ask this boldly because we know that you desire to do this in our hearts, and we ask you to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be picking up at verse 11 this week. Verse 11 reads, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, just to be really honest with ourselves for just a minute, we might come across that verse, and we've heard about love just a few times so far as we move through 1 John. We might be tempted to think that this is just a bit elementary. Maybe we've heard this one before, right? This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. But before we check out, before we think that this is a familiar message, I want to tell you that God allows us to come to a particular passage at a particular time through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's His Spirit that will use that word to allow us to see it afresh, to examine our own hearts and minds, and to apply this to our faith and to our church. As I looked at this verse and I thought, well, maybe this, this isn't the deepest theology, right? I, I went through and I looked at the pastoral library and there's great tomes in our, our brother, Pastor John's collection of books. There's some really heavy theology books that you have to carry with both arms. There's some, some deep truths that you could study for a lifetime. And as I went through and, and looked for resources to prayerfully prepare this message, I came across a, a really thin book, not a particularly weighty one, but it was bookmarked, and it was highlighted by our brother. And I came across a particular statement talking about the evangelist Dwight Moody. And, and Dwight Moody talks in his own writings about sharing his pulpit with an English evangelist. And he invited this English evangelist to come and preach for seven days in a row. 
And Dwight Moody scratched his head and, and was surprised that this brother that came preached John 3.16, six messages in a row. And highlighted, it says here, for six nights he had preached on this one text. The seventh night came and he stepped to the pulpit. Every eye was on him. He said, beloved friends, I have been hunting all day for a new text, but I cannot find anything so good as the old one. So we will go back to the third chapter of John and the 16th verse. And he preached the seventh sermon from those wonderful words, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Praise God. That truth, examining what Christ did for us and exhibiting his love perfectly is what we have the privilege of doing this morning. May we never think that that's old news. May we never think that we don't need to hear it again. May we gaze upon the finished work of Jesus Christ together this morning as we undertake this text. John, as we move through this third chapter, tells us yet again. He takes us back to the fact that we were taken from darkness to life and now from a place of hatefulness to a place of love. And he begins this particular portion at verse 11 saying, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. What does that mean from the beginning, right? We've seen this term various times throughout this letter, and we see that it could mean from the, the beginning of Scripture. And indeed, that's true. The Decalogue, the law, tells us of loving one another. Leviticus chapter 19, as one example, Leviticus is going through and in and, and, and that statement of the law, there's conduct statements about how we demonstrate love to one another. We care for those who are in need. Specifically, at verse 17 of Leviticus 19, the law states, you should not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It's been stated from the beginning. But John might have also meant it was stated from the beginning of, of Christ's earthly ministry. And in fact, we know that throughout Christ's ministry, love was preached. We have the encounter where the, the Pharisees come to Christ and the, the man asks, of all of those 613 laws, which one's the most important? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. It hangs on those two things. Jesus distilled it down to these two things. Love God first and love your neighbor. But from the beginning, throughout law, we were given a definition of love. But not until Christ came in human form did we have a perfect demonstration of that law. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13? For the sake of, of context, I'm going to let you scan along a few verses here to know where we're at. We begin John chapter 13 with the feast of the, the Passover. Jesus' disciples in obedience go and secure the upper room, and they get together, and, and Jesus does this unspeakable 
active love for his disciples. He begins to wash their feet. He takes off his tunic and he ties it around his waist and he begins to wash their feet. If you move forward a few verses, then you, you see them partaking of the Last Supper together. He breaks the bread and he takes the wine and he explains the sacrifice that he's going to make for them. And then he explains that his, his friend Judas there is going to betray him. And if you look at, at verse 18, Jesus says, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against you, has, a, has he, raised his heel, his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, but before it takes place, that when it does take place, that you may believe that I am he. Judas betrays him. And just a couple verses later, we have in verse 31, we have Jesus explaining this demonstration of the law. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified. And when God is glorified in him, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And skipping ahead to verse 34, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Isn't that incredible? He gets done washing his disciples' feet. He gets done acknowledging his betrayal. He sees Judas out to the door, and then he says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love as I have loved you. A demonstration of love. And then he says, and by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. See, that's the message of love that, that John's readers would have heard from the beginning. They would have heard of his firsthand report of Jesus' demonstration for love. They would have heard from their first coming to faith in Jesus Christ of that love of Christ displayed. Not only, of course, through the washing of feet, but through his shed blood on the cross. With that in view, that demonstration, we had the law defining love and we had Christ demonstrating love, we get to this next verse back in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. John lays out an example. He says, Why should we, we should not be like Cain, who is of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, what an interesting example for John to use, right? We just looked at John chapter 13. We know that John was there as he saw Judas in his act of wickedness betraying the most righteous one. Why would he not use that as an example? Instead, John uses as an example of, of love Cain and Abel. Now, it could be because Cain and Abel are the first account of homicide in the Bible, Right? We had Adam and Eve in their willful disobedience of God, their unrighteousness being expelled from God's presence. Cain and Abel, the first recorded homicide in Scripture. But I would assert that the reason he picks this as an example is because Cain, Cain and Abel were what? They were brothers, born of the, the same mother, born of the same father. And this act of unspeakable violence, this act of hatred that John calls out, is within a family structure. We need to understand that in that context, 
John wants us to understand that these words help us understand life in the church. If you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to evaluate this account together. It's perhaps trivia, but it is, in fact, the only direct reference to Old Testament in 1 John. And it's the only person, aside from Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father, that he names specifically. Cain. Why Cain? Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. I want to stop there for just a minute because the Bible uses names and and meanings of names to help us understand the reality of what's being taught here. So Cain was named after his mom. I asked for a man-child. Here he is. Abel's name isn't defined here, okay? But it's a Hebrew word like Hebel, and, and that word means breath. That same word breath is the one that the writer of Ecclesiastes uses in the first chapter and the twelfth chapter to translate as vanity. So even from the beginning, Abel's name is, a, is one that would point to the short duration of his life. But he's in Scripture to help us understand something important. What is that? Verse 3 of Genesis chapter 4. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought a firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. In looking at this, it says in the course of time, this is probably not their first sacrifice. They had probably already had the discipline of coming before the Lord and offering sacrifices. But in this occasion that they were told of, Abel brings the first fruit, the, the animal that slaughtered. And Cain brings from what he's raised as a farmer. But verse 5 says, the tail end of verse 4 says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Now, we're going to make a few observations about this before we, we move forward. First of all, it's noteworthy that in this act... This happening here, nowhere do we see God saying, you know what, your brother's sacrifice was better. These two acts of transaction, of, of giving an offering to the Lord, were independent of one another. Abel gave to the Lord, Cain gave to the Lord. But in, in a typical act, Cain's eyes go to what his brother's done. What an interesting statement. I was thinking of a family learning to, teaching their kids to pray, right? They're around the dinner table and they're told to, to pray with piety. Fold your hands, right? So you're not fidgeting with your fork. Close your eyes so you can pray, right? And they do that and you, you get done and the sister says, he had his eyes open during prayer. <laughs> well, how do you know that, right? The, 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 the issue we have here is that oftentimes we're distracted from the vertical relationship that we need to be focusing on with God to being concerned what our brother or our sister are doing. That's the first sign of danger here. The second one is that when God didn't accept Cain's offering, 
that he presented as he thought was right, not as God instructed, but as he thought was right. It says, Cain was angry and his face fell. Now, if we go back to what we learned together moving through the book of James, James chapter 1 verse 20 says, for the anger of man does not produce what? The righteousness of God. So this anger in, in Cain's heart was not producing the righteousness of God. Let's continue the narrative at verse 6. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You see that? God in his graciousness gives him a divine warning. For those of us who have the abiding Holy Spirit, that warning comes through God's word. That's, that warning comes through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And Cain blew past that. The evil in his heart drowned out the warning voice of God Almighty. Look at verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying from the ground. And you, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain disregards God's warning. Cain speaks to his brother and the word of God doesn't tell us exactly what he said, but he kills him. He takes his life. Listening to a sermon from John MacArthur, John MacArthur explains that in many translations, the word that's used to describe the death of Abel is that Cain slew his brother. The word would describe taking a knife and cutting from ear to ear, the jugular. In the same way, they were instructed to take the life of a sacrifice. So perhaps Cain just bows up against God and says, you want your sacrifice? Here it is. You see the danger in that? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, describes instead Abel's sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel offered according to faith, according to obedience to God, an acceptable sacrifice. Cain did not. Cain demonstrated a danger of competition between two brothers. Church, we need to understand there's an, an application for, there, for that there as we present offerings, as we present sacrifices of spiritual gifts, as we do life within the body, there must not be competition between brothers and sisters. Consider Mark chapter 10. You got James and you got John. They asked Jesus, which one of us is going to sit at your right and which one's going to sit at your left? And Jesus said, that's not 
for us to talk about right now. But you know what the other disciples said? It said the other 10 saw this and they were filled with indignation at James and John. The nature of our relationship to God, while influenced by our relationships with our brothers and sisters, our focus needs to be on Christ. Our focus needs to be on obedience to Christ. Our focus might, must never be on co- competition with one another. Last two observations about Cain and Abel here. One is that as a consequence for Cain's sin, he was put out of God's presence. Adam and Eve had already been escorted from the garden. And the Genesis account says, You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth. And verse 16 says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden, expelled from God's presence. That sinful hatred of a brother towards another puts distance between us and our God. It also, in a noteworthy fashion, if we look at verse 14, resulted in fear In Cain's heart, Cain says to God, Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. You see, the response to that sin was fear. Vengeance belongs to whom? Church. To the Lord. Let's go back to 1 John chapter 3 together. That 12th verse says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's we're righteousness. We're righteous. You see this contrast, and it's called out here that Cain was of the evil one. Okay? So while the familial relationship between brothers is important to understand, as John unpacks this epistle and talks to us about authenticity, he's telling us that there's sometimes folks in the gathering that might not be brothers. We were warned of that earlier when we talked about false preachers and false teachers. John said, don't be deceived. And here now he's using Cain as an example. He says, Cain is of the evil one, but yet he's your brother. Then in verse 13, John makes an unusual statement. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. These two would have been familiar words of Jesus. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays and he talks to God the Father and he says, In verse 14 of John 17, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. You see that? So it shouldn't be surprising if we are followers of Jesus Christ that the world hates us. But why does John put this statement right after the other one talking about Cain and Abel? It shouldn't surprise us that the world hates us. It should, however, surprise us if we see that same hatred happening within the body of Christ. 
If we find more friendly fire in the walls of the church than we do in a secular workplace, we should be surprised. We should understand, however, that the hatred that is directed towards us as followers of Jesus Christ should be because we have and exhibit his righteousness. As I thought through this idea of, of Jesus explaining to us that he first was hated, John 1 came to mind. Can we turn to John 1 together? The Gospel of John, chapter 1. Before Jesus tells us that the world hated us, as it hated him, John tells us that the world didn't actually even recognize Jesus. If you would, look at verse 10. Verse 9, rather. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Think about that for a minute. What more obvious act of hatred could there be than to be creator God, stepping in human form to your own creation, to people that, that you gave life and breath, and they don't recognize you? What to us as sinful people is more egregious than not being recognized? We walk into a room and we want to be recognized. We walk, go home from work and we want the welcome wagon, right? We want to be recognized. But Christ, as creator God, stepped into a world incognito. But conversely, just as that is an incredible expression of hatred, Christ's response is an incredible demonstration of love. In humility, not considering equality with God something to be grasped, he took on human form. And he did that, giving for us an example. Can we serve our families in times where perhaps we feel taken for granted? Moms, can you, can you make a, a dinner for your family? They, they don't thank you for it. You, you sit down to this thankless meal and they, they comment on your new recipe not being your best yet. Can you still serve them? Dads, can you, you get home from a, a hard day at work and instead of expecting that uh, shoulder massage, grab the grill and help with dinner, right? And how much more for us in the, in the family of Christ here at church, right? Can we serve without being recognized? Can we give up that tendency that we might have in our sinful fallen flesh? They didn't recognize my effort. Jesus did. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. John 15, if we flip a few chapters back, lays out with even greater clarity the response of, of the world to the righteous one, to the God-man. Beginning at verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. 
If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. Verse 24. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Don't be surprised that the world hates you for exhibiting that righteousness of Christ. But Peter gives us a warning, doesn't he? 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter talks about the persecution of the church and he says, yeah, but don't let anyone, don't, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. The word of God makes a, a big difference between being hated for the cause of Christ and being hated for unrighteousness. Church, if the world has any grievance against us, it, it shouldn't be because we're hateful towards them. It should be because we demonstrate the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. Make sure that it hates you justly. First John chapter 3, verse 14. John goes back to his talking of, of authenticity, the authenticity of that inward conversion that happens in us. He says, We know that we have passed out of life into death because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. This we know statement, there's different translations of how John uses it, but over 40 times in 1 John does he use this statement. We know, we are assured, we are convinced, we are confident that we are Christ's. We know that we're his. How do we know that? Because we've passed from death into life. Again, this is John using these amazing contrasts from darkness to light. From death into life. From hatred into love. And we know that this transformation has happened to us because we've gone from death into life. How do we have that new life? We have that new life through placing our faith in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, through the work of regeneration, makes us new, born again. 1 John 4, 7, we haven't got there yet, a little spoiler. Next chapter, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You see that we're of his seed, we've been given new life. We pass from life, from death into life. And how do we know this now? This third test of outward conduct says, because we love the brothers. Our, our disposition is no longer one where we are competitive, where we are holding grudges, where we are focused on ourselves, but we're capable of exhibiting a love like that of Jesus Christ. 
We know that we pass from death into life because we love our brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Think about this statement for just a second. We've talked about abiding, right? We saw over the course of the last couple of Sundays that we abide in Christ. The Holy Spirit abides in us. We are called to have Christ abide in us. And in doing so, we produce fruit, the fruit of obedience, the fruit of righteousness, and the fruit of love. If we have known Christ and he, in fact, dwells in us, that produces a response. It says, whoever does not love abides in death. Think about Lazarus for just a minute. Lazarus. Jesus didn't show up on time, right? Lazarus dies. He's placed in a tomb and he's dead. Christ comes and he stands outside the tomb and he says, Lazarus. And Lazarus, supernaturally, through the power of the God-man, comes back to life. And then Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. What if Lazarus had just stayed there? No, I'm good. I'll stay here. Tomb's nice. He's wrapped in grave clothes. He's wrapped in what is filth. He's in the presence of death. No, what does Lazarus do? In obedience, he emerges from the tomb with new life. You don't stay there. If you've been given new life, respond in obedience to what Christ has done and, and get out of there. Whoever does not love abides in death. As we understand this connection between what God does in our life and our obedience and our righteousness and our love, a particular verse really ministered to me this week, and I'd like to invite you to, to look at it with me. It's, it's 1 Peter chapter 1. We actually read some of the, the verses around it last week, and it continues to be a key preaching text that we come back to because the gospel is portrayed with such clarity here. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll begin at verse 20 and we'll read through verse 23 of 1 Peter 1. He, referring to Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, and through the living and abiding word of God. This is regeneration. This is Christ who is foreknown, being made manifest, not only describing the law, but demonstrating it. And in doing so, for our sake, he was raised from the dead. And because of that, we also may be made new, may have new life in Christ. And verse 21 is incredible. For through him, you are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 22, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly and from a pure heart. I have the verse up here 
on screen and a second translation that I think will be helpful for us in understanding what's being communicated here. First, it says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. Now, this word purify, if you recall, we saw in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, it says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Right? So we describe the, the, the monergistic work of the Holy Spirit regenerates us. He makes us new. It's not from our works. It's not from our own deeds. But then there's that synergistic work where he allows us to be a part of being sanctified. And so as we look at this verse in, in 1 Peter, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, R.C. Sproul's commentary that ministered to me this week explained that that purification doesn't come after we've obeyed. That purification comes as we obey. Obedience brings about purification. As we continue to yield to the Holy Spirit and obey, we are further purified. And what does that purification look like? It says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I have it up there in the, the Legacy Standard Bible version where the word earnestly is, is translated a bit differently. It's translated fervently. John MacArthur explained the Greek word that's used there and I want to spend a couple of minutes thinking about this because it's incredibly vivid. The word that's used there for earnestly or, or fervently in English is a word that comes from a Greek extenos. The word is like tenacious or tenuous and it would be described be used to describe something like, like physiology, like a, like a muscle that's being stretched. Love the brothers without hypocrisy. Fervently love one another from the heart. Lur love them with such a, a tenuous use of your muscles that it hurts you. Consider the, the human muscle. When we hold on to something so tightly that you get that, that white knuckle and you're holding on and you're about to cramp, right? Our flesh knows how to hold on to grudges that tightly, doesn't it? 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. The, the fervent Holding on to things shouldn't be holding on to grudges. The, the fervent use of our muscles, the stretching of our muscles ought to be to display the love of Christ. Tenacious love. Tenacious love is what Jesus demonstrated on the cross. His arms outstretched. He was hung on the cross to demonstrate love for us. Not just to, to describe it, but to demonstrate it. For us as a church, our tenuous love, that, that muscle-stretching love means that sometimes we might have to back, bend over backwards for one another. We, we might have to go out of our way. Romans chapter 12, verse 10, describes this sort of tenacious love. Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
That's an example of, of a love that causes us to stretch, to go outside of our comfort zone, outdo one another in showing one another honor. What's that look like? That looks like putting our own desires secondary and putting the desires and the needs and the preferences of our brother and sister first. That's what we're, we're called to do. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth from a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love gives preference to other brothers and sisters. Love thinks actively about the well-being of others instead of ourselves. That's where Philippians 2 helps us understand how the gospel gets applied to what we do. In humility, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant. While we're still in 1 Peter, that same word fervently or earnestly or, or muscle stretching is seen in chapter 4, verse 8. Peter writes again, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. You see that? It's ongoing. It's not like, well, I showed him honor once, I'm done. I did something really nice for them last year. We're cool. No, it's, it's ongoing. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love does what? It covers a multitude of sins. Let go of keeping a track record of what others have done to not acknowledge you. Quit keeping a track record of something that somebody said that might have been insensitive. Instead, love them fervently, earnestly, with outstretched arms. Because that love covers a multitude of sins. There's a verse on there as well in, in Proverbs chapter 10. The Old Testament teaches us that same concept, right? It says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all of our offenses. Church, have our offenses been covered through Christ? Amen. And yes, they have been. His love covers all offenses. How about ours? How about ours? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 together and, and do a, a little self-assessment. It's always fun to do these self-assessments, isn't it? Never hurts. We always get a hundred. <laughs> Let's start at verse four of First Corinthians chapter thirteen, the love chapter. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Anybody score 100? I'm so grateful for the, the morning Sunday school class that we had this morning, looking with Holy Spirit power at our own tendency to be irritable, at our own inability to see God as ultimately in control. We want our own control of the situation, and that produces in us irritability. But that's not the love of Christ. 
Love is patient and is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Moreover, love forgives all things. It doesn't keep a, a record of wrong. If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We'll begin at verse 21, and I want to tell you there's a unique connection between this passage and the Genesis 4 account that we read earlier. We read about Cain slaying his brother Abel, and as he was expelled from God's presence, God instructed Cain that no one would take revenge upon him. If anyone were to take revenge upon Cain, God would avenge him seven times over. If you follow along in that same text and read to the close of Genesis chapter 4, you're introduced to a great-great-grandson of Cain, a guy named Lamech. And, and Lamech, pridefully, besides being the first polygamist recorded in the Bible, also slays someone else. And he says that he's above any revenge, and he says, Cain's revenge was sevenfold. Mine is 70 times seven, meaning I'm untouchable. No one can avenge me. I'm controller of my own fate. I can do whatever I want. So throughout the Jewish tradition, that was held as coming to refer to vengeance. And so it's curious that when this number comes to mind, it would have been associated with vengeance. And, and here what we see in Matthew chapter 18, we'll see that number used not in, in terms of revenge, but in terms of forgiveness. Christ changes the narrative. Verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? So, so Peter was asking a question here based on the, the Talmud and the, the Jewish day, theory of the day was kind of like baseball, like three strikes and you're out, right? You can forgive him three times. And Peter thinks he's doing really well saying, hey, how about as many as seven times? the number of perfection. And Jesus says in verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. He's the avenger. God is the avenger. The forgiveness mandate is what we're to exhibit. Let's read the rest of this account together. Verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle... One who was brought to him owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii and seizing him, began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you 
all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Through the words of a parable, Jesus makes this abundantly clear. Church, if we're in Christ, the record of our wrongs has been erased on the cross. If we're in Christ, the the outstretched arms of our Messiah on the cross atone for our sins, and we have been forgiven much. Therefore, forgiving love is what we're called to. If you're keeping a record of wrong, tear it up. Going back to, to 1 John chapter 3, verse 15. John makes this statement, again, to, to make this all very clear. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So if we know him, we no longer abide in death. If we have eternal life abiding in us, then we no longer are murderous. Now, this is a tough one, right? Murder. None of us feel particularly guilty of murder this morning. We all think we're off scot-free. But we've been around Scripture enough to understand what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. And that is, if we have anger towards our brother, it's the same as though we were guilty of murder. That anger that doesn't produce the righteousness of God qualifies us for God's holy wrath. Matthew chapter 5 makes it clear that we are guilty. Verse 43 says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. And earlier in that same chapter, back at verse 21, Jesus equates anger with murder. Verse 21 says, You have heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has sinned something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. All of this, this talk of murder is equated with an ungodly anger, a hatred towards our brother. And John tells us, if you were brought out of that, leave that behind. That should not be the hallmark of your life. Do we sin? Do we offend our brother and sister? Yes, we do. But we ought to make quick business out of repenting and making it right. We ought to make quick business about following God's instructions 
If you got something against your brother, fix it before you go and offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That verse, verse 15, helps us understand the severity of anger against a brother or sister. That helps us understand that God takes that as an offense against him. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, says, Cain killed Abel with his own bloody hands. Why? Because he hated Abel? Yes, but also no. Why does Cain murder? And here he quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, why does Cain murder? Bonhoeffer asks rhetorically, out of hatred for God. Murder is an act of hatred towards God for making or accepting another person who offends us. It's an act of hatred towards God for accepting gifts and honors from another in our stead. The severity of punishment for murder says no murder has eternal life, right? If we go back to the law, the stipulations for murder are clear. Numbers chapter 35, starting at verse 31, says, Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You see that? If we're guilty of anger against another, we're guilty of murder. And if we're guilty of murder, who pays for the murder? The murderer. The, the Bible tells us that there's no atonement for shed blood except the shedding of the one who shed the blood. So Cain killed Abel. Who paid for Cain's sin? Cain would have had to pay for Cain's sin. If we're guilty of these offenses, who rightfully ought to pay for our sin? Us. That's what the law requires. We pay for our sins. But God. But God instead offered to pay it for us. He came to fulfill the law. To demonstrate the love described in the law. And to do so perfectly. And he gave his own blood. 1 Peter 1.19 says, But the precious blood of Christ, like that with a lamb without blemish or spot, that blood is what paid for our sin. And more remarkably, John talks about this blood sacrifice as he begins this precious book that we're reading together. 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You see that back where we started from? We started from the fact that we now have this fellowship. We are truly brothers and sisters in Christ because of his blood. We walk in the light because he is the light. His blood cleanses us from all sin and in obedience, we continue to be purified through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Praise God for that. We didn't have to pay for our own sins. We're going to stop at verse 15, but can't leave you hanging there. We got we to just dip our toes into verse 16. We're going to come back to this one next week. But the gospel 
brings us low and the gospel raises us up that he might be worshipped through what he has completed. All this talk of our lack of love and our need for Christ's atoning work, keep our eyes on Christ as he exhibits this love. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for them. Christ laid down his life for us. What greater example is this? No greater love that Christ laid down his life for us. I'm going to end with this quote. This is from John Piper. And John Piper explains that how through rightly understanding what Christ has done for us, we can now therefore imitate Christ. We can be like him. Listen to this quote. Piper says, Imitation is not salvation, but salvation brings imitation. Christ is not given to us first as a model, but as a savior. In the experience of the believer, first comes the pardon of Christ, then the pattern of Christ. In the experience of Christ himself, they happen together. The same suffering that pardons our sins provides a pattern for our love. In fact, only when we experience the pardon of Christ can he become a pattern for us. May our depth of understanding the salvation that Christ has been so real to us, may we know his pardon, his forgiveness to us, that we can't help but imitate it. May our forgiveness be given as liberally as the forgiveness that he has given us. It came at great cost. May Christ be to us not just our Savior, but also our model of love one towards one another. As we prepare our hearts to go before the sacraments of communion today, I want to have us conclude with a prayer. And I'm going to read this prayer for us. It's going to be on the screen. Normally, I would ask you to close your eyes for prayer, but this time I want you to keep your eyes open for the prayer as you, you read this. I'll read it for us. And we need to think through the words. These are from Valley of the Vision. A sister in our congregation has adapted the words to us, and I, I think it's right for us to consider what Christ has done for us this morning, for us to rejoice in what he's done for us this morning. And for us to ask that he would, in obedience, continue to purify us as a church. That we would be a church that is indeed characterized by the love of Christ. D.L. Moody said, you can be a doctor without love, you can be a lawyer without love, but you can't do the work of church without love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I am blind, be my light. Ignorant, be my wisdom. Open my ears to hear and melt my conscience, that no hardness may, be, may remain. I was a stranger, an outcast, a rebel, but your cross has brought me near and made me a child of God, a co-heir with you. O oh God, that I may love you as you love me, that I may walk worthy of you, my Lord, and reflect your image to a watching world. May I always see your beauty with the clear eye of faith and feel the power of your spirit in my heart. Lord Jesus, may your forgiveness wash me 
Your grace confine me, and your love compel and constrain me to earnestly love others with a pure and tender heart. Amen.